You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good to see you here today as we continue our laid-back vacation kind of mood throughout the summer. If you're not on our newsletter list, by the way, uh, let me know. We'll get you on that, okay? And um, because there's lots of things. And I'm sorry, you got to scroll through the whole thing because there's quite a few things coming up. And people, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. It was probably about six stories down. So uh, just recognize that. Um, we have learned through the summer a lot about love, and I have a feeling next week we're going to love uh, learn more. Carl Gaelic will be preaching again, which is fantastic. Again, again, um, we're, once a month I'm getting somebody else to take my place in preaching, which frees me up to do a little more of the campus ministry side and also gives you a break. You get some good preaching once in a while, okay? So um, he wrote a book called Love Paradox. Did you mention that already in your sermons? Yes, uh, they're for sale in the lobby. They're for sale in the lobby. <laughs> You can buy the T-shirt, the mug, the swag that goes with it as well. No. I, and next week, you're getting the verses, man, right? First John 4, 7, you know, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Yeah, I don't have those this week. I might refer to a little, but I'm not going to steal your thunder, I don't think. We are on First uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to learn about what the deep love of God is all about and that it is found in the person of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and how important that is. And yes, sometimes that means there are particularities about the Christian gospel that some people may find offensive, but we celebrate them because it frees us to not be so concerned about ourselves, but can be focused on God's love for us and for others and makes us humble. Believe it or not, it might not seem like it this morning right up here, but it can make us humble servants for the sake of the world and for the sake of others. We're going to look at that as we read um, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. You can follow along, by the way, in the version of the Bible app. We've got notes for this that are listed there. You can follow along with that. And um, you can take notes as well in that. But we're going to read right now 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, you might be going like, wait a minute. What does love got to do with this? You singing the song already? <laughs> What's love? Yeah, I can see. Yeah, it's a good song, actually, right? It's a good song, man. Um, 
I couldn't, yeah, I'm not even going to try. But um, because this passage is talking about the spirit of truth, the spirit of error, about, quote, right and wrong, and that leads down a path that you might go like, ooh. One of the great problems the world has with Christianity, and actually with all religions, not just Christianity, is its exclusivity, its claim to have a truth, okay? And they think that's the big stumbling block. If you just get rid of truth, you can be loving to each other. And the reality is, from this passage, as well as the rest of 1 John, if you want to have deep love, that is, kipona aloha, you cannot separate truth and love into two different categories. Have a little truth and a lot of love. Ain't going to work. The only kind of love the Bible really knows is love that is truthful, that is authentic and genuine and transparent and honest. And there is no such thing as truth without love as well, by the way. Okay? That's just cruelty sometimes. Okay? I'm just going to tell it like it is. It's a good power play people do on others. And I'm speaking truth, but you're not doing it in love. It's not really true. That's the scriptural understanding of deep love. And we're going to be looking at this in this text. Now, um, some of us are a little older than others here. <laughs> okay? And uh, I remember a time when, back in my childhood, if you'd ask people and interview them on the street, what's the biggest problem in the world that's causing the most peace and fractions and divisions, they would respond, politics. Specifically, political ideologies of communism, capitalism, totalitarian governments, other whatevers, right? Political theories at the time when there was the Soviet Union were some of the greatest divisions in our world at the time. But with the collapse of the Iron Curtain, with the collapse of all of that, um, if you'd ask that same question today, what's the greatest problem in this world that causes such divisions and lack of peace and harmony, what would be the answer? Politics. Well, maybe politics yet. That's in America right now, maybe. Religion. Okay. Yeah, by the way, I'm teaching this class next January on religion and politics in America at FGCU, which people look at me like, what are you choosing the two worst things to talk about? And you're putting them together in one class. Well, you can't get rid of them. I don't know if you realize that. You cannot get, you can try all you want to say, we don't need politics. I think politics is terrible, but that's a political statement probably. And you could say, religion, religion should just go away. Well, it doesn't. It just morphs into something else that's religious, okay? Now, I agree actually. Religion causes a lot of divisions. Religion is a very divisive issue. Because what so often happens in religion is when you think that, okay, I've got this system, and if I follow this system, I go these steps, and then I'm kind of almost climbing a ladder of trying to gain something through a religious thing, then I can look back and start de dehumanizing. The, uh, like, actually, well, those people, they just don't know better. 
or they should know better, or they are just, you know, whatever, or they're whatever. And then all of a sudden, I've made divisions. There's an us group and a them group. There's an in group and an out group. And then all it takes is one more step to start treating them as a caricature. And then after that, it becomes dehumanizing. And I think you probably understand that has happened time and again. And if you look at um, the different conflicts in this world, some of them are political, some of them are economic, but a number of them have been religious. And you probably wouldn't even contest the fact that religion can be a divisive issue. Okay? But like I said, you just can't get rid of it just because you think it's a bad thing or could be a bad thing. You might try to minimize it, you might try to marginalize it, but like I said, it morphs. You're going to have to solve the problem of how religion or politics, which we're not talking about that really today, fits in so that we can actually do it in such a way. And I think this text brings up a number of alternative strategies of how to deal with the divisiveness of religions and its claims of exclusivity in the systems that are here. Now, two of them are inferred from this text. They're not directly in this text, but they are the methods that the world is trying to use even as of today to deal with this issue of religion. And then the third one, I believe, is quite transparently in this text that shows how you can understand this whole idea of exclusivity in such a way. You see, everybody has exclusive claims, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. And it's about a lot of things. It's not just about you know, my sports teams. You know. um, everybody has exclusive claims. It's how you handle them and what your exclusive claims are. Everybody has fundamentals. The question is what your fundamentals are that really matter. So we're going to look then at three different strategies, explain them, and then show you, I think, the one that Christianity fits into when it's understood properly. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody within Christianity or who claims to be within Christianity does it well. In fact, um, right before our service today, we have a time of prayer at about 9.15, 9.20, and Matt, over there in the corner, uh, shared last night he was down in Naples, right? And there were a couple street preachers there. And he was troubled by it because they were yelling and screaming at people. And, you know, and that's the caricature people have of Christianity then. I'm going to show you that that's not Christian at all. You can't yell the gospel at people. <laughs> you can't power it over people. It doesn't work that way. It's not truth and love together. There's, and I don't care what quote scripture you're quoting and yelling at people, it's not going to work. It isn't then really the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So it's not even Christianity is always the religion that does this well. Okay? But the world's got a couple alternatives. So the first strategy, by the way, is a belief that was very consistent in uh, the Enlightenment. It kind of came up in the Enlightenment time period. And that is religion is just going to weaken over time when humans progress. And may many people today are still hoping this happens. 
Some are calling for religion to just disappear, you know? Um, I think John Lennon was, you know, imagine no religion was part of his line, and he's hoping for that time that that would happen. And so for decades, people believed, especially in Western civilization, that once our technology keeps improving and science shows us the truth of how things actually work, all these, quote, gobbledygook, religious, superstitious type stuff will fall away, and this primitive period will end. You know, and like I said, the Enlightenment started this. And, and there was a reason why um, the thinkers in the 16th and 17th or 17th and 18th century in Europe were thinking this way because they were going through huge religious wars between different factions within Christianity. And there was the claims of authority of this church tradition and that church tradition. And so these Enlightenment thinkers said, let's just throw it all out. What we need to base all decision-making on is human reason and understanding. And as long as we can use reason above and throw religion to the side and let it diminish. And by the way, some of, some of, not all, but some of the founding fathers of our country, like Thomas Jefferson, were hoping for just such a thing. You know? That's why he strips out of his version of the Bible all the miraculous and gets it down to just moralism, something that he could rationally assume would make sense. But here's the problem. It hasn't happened. Not even close. The world probably is more religious today than ever before. And now, I don't know about and almost every world religion the major world religions are growing, not shrinking. That technology hasn't solved our problem, it's creating more of them or exacerbating the ones that we already knew about human nature. And what you find out, for example, I know a little more about Christianity than others. So the, the continent of Africa went from 9% Christian to 50% Christian today in just the last 100 years. Do you realize that? And China, right now, even under the communist regime, is basically doing the same path that within 50 to 100 years, it's going to be more Christian than almost any nation on earth. We're not becoming less religious, but more religious. Why? I think 1 John chapter 4, he kind of explains just a little, a hint of it. He says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, John right there is actually talking, as you can see later, about false prophets, false teachers. But notice he doesn't say test the prophets. He says test the spirits. He says test the spirits because human beings are spiritual material beings. You just can't get away with the spiritual. You can try to be a materialist all you want, but people are longing and want to connect to something beyond themselves that is spiritual in nature, no matter what. And you can try to strip every society from that. You can try to eliminate it, and it still comes back. But not everything that's spiritual is good. Not all things are good. John would say in this letter, you can fix yourself on something that is spiritual that actually will enslave you and will not free you 
and will cause you to hate or distance yourself from other human beings or disconnect rather than to connect and love and serve. It can give you a feeling of superiority and denigrate others. Human beings are innately, John would say, spiritual beings. You're not just a bag of chemicals, okay? You're not just a bunch of stardust that got together in such a weird way and cha-ching, there you are. After you have a spiritual part of your being that matters. And as a result, maybe traditional religions will fade. And we've seen some of that here in the United States, that church attendance and church uh, affiliation has declined, but what's replaced it are other spiritual things. And what's sad to say is many of these things that now are taking over, and like, as you mentioned, politics today. Have you ever noticed how politics today has become almost a religion in itself? Or nationalism and other isms that we have have just grown to be the identifying factor for an individual. And notice what also happens when that becomes the center of their spiritual being. It starts to make a very strong us and them within our same nation. And those people are evil and we happen to be good. And then all of a sudden you've got this ladder of success. You can dehumanize and you can treat people poorly. Right? It's amazing how that happens today. So the question is not the spiritual will go away, the religious will go away, because that's not possible. You're a spiritual being, I'm a spiritual being. So the question is, what spirit are we connected to? Now there's a second strategy that's probably more familiar to you. You might even think this is the best one to go with in this world of pluralism, especially a nation like ours. And that is strategy B, confine religion to the private realm. It's kind of a spiritual or religious don't ask, don't tell policy. And I say that in somewhat tongue in cheek because I think that's what, like a public university, 80% of the students coming in are religious, okay? I don't know if you know that yet. 20% may not be agnostics and, and more atheistic in belief, but still 80% are religious. The majority of the world is religious. But we kind of almost have this don't ask, don't tell policy. We're not going to talk about it. In the classroom, outside of the classroom, don't deal with it. Just keep it to yourself. That's the strategy. And when people say that, they often have a couple of reasons for saying that. One is the assumption that all religions are equally valid paths to the divine. Have you ever heard that one before? All religions are basically good, and they're just different paths. You know, all, all roads lead to Rome. Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, okay. And the second one is, okay, you might have your religious truth. Your truth is your truth, and that's good for you. My truth is my truth, and that's good for me. Just keep it private to yourself. So we're going to talk through these, first of all. And you can actually, this all religions are valid approaches to God, just let everybody you know, coexist and be okay with it, is extremely popular today. And I think John talks about this here. 
He says in verse uh, four, five, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And who the they are in this text are these false teachers that were going on are critics of Christianity and authentic Christianity. They are, and he's saying, you know, they're coming from a religious point of view. And they're speaking in line with the religious point of view of the world. And what John is really saying is everybody has a faith position. Everybody has a faith position. So if somebody says to you, you know, all religions are basically the same, and they're all equal divine paths to God. They just got a different, you know. You might just ask them a question. Why should I believe that? Ask them, why should I believe that all religions are basically the same? Why are you saying that? Okay. They probably can't answer. Uh, well, well, because, well, I mean, we don't want to. And then they might come back and say, well, you know, it's kind of like that elephant, and everybody's touching this elephant. And actually, this is an old story that's been around quite a long time of an elephant with different blind men touching it, and they're touching a different part of the elephant, and each of the people are touching a part of the elephant and think they've, got, they, they've touched a truth, but not the whole truth. Um, and that's what religions are. They're all groping in the dark, and they've got a little truth in themselves. There's a, quite a few problems with this analogy. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, Leslie Newbigin is a Christian missionary and theologian who wrote a number of books, and one was called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. It's kind of what we live in. He had this illustration thrown at him on the mission field time and again. Why are you out here as a Christian trying to share the gospel with others? Because everybody has the truth. All the religions are basically the same. This is what Newbigin writes. He says, the story of the elephant and the blind men is told from the point of view of a king and his courtiers who are not blind but can see the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of a part of the truth. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But, of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is immensely arrogant, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world religions only grope, are groping after, and embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. So when somebody says, well, you know, they're all good, and they're all divine paths, and they're all equal, it sounds so humble. It sounds like everybody needs to stay in their place. But the one who's asserting that is actually taking a position of authority, claiming to know something he's saying nobody else can know. She can't, she's saying, I know something you cannot possibly. It's also a contradiction in terms. There's no way for you to say that all religions are equal unless you have a type of knowledge that you're saying none of the religions have or could have. So how is it that you know? It's not just that, though, about this elephant story. Christianity at its heart 
not because we came up with this, but Christianity at its heart says that God has chosen to come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He's walked right into the story himself, and he has spoken and revealed himself. So Greg Cockle writes, even though the men are blind, the elephant isn't necessarily mute. This is the factor that illustrates the illustration doesn't allow for. What if the elephant speaks? The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own self-disclosure. He's not passive and silent, leaving us to guess about his nature. God tells us what he is like and what he wants. If God speaks, this changes everything. Do you understand? Religion is not an object that we try to manipulate or figure out. Well, maybe that's what religion is. Christianity, at its heart, claims, I wouldn't have ever figured it out. I wouldn't have known anything. Yeah, I'm blind, and I'm turned in on myself, but God is the one who came in. God is the one who showed. I, ha I wouldn't know anything except that someone told me the story that tells me who God is. It's nothing about me. It's all about what he did. Now, you might still say, well, that's great, but keep your religion to yourself. You can claim to have the truth or that the truth found you rather than you found the truth. But don't try to spread your truth to others. It just causes problems. Now, here's the problem with that even. What is religion? Do you understand what I mean by that? Now, if religion is just, you know, formal stuff like what we do here on Sunday morning and we're part of Christianity and you kind of nail down certain things, on a, you know, and figure it out, um, and you just keep that to yourself, okay, that's one thing. But I like what um, philosopher Richard Rorty asserts, that religion is really, at its heart, answers to big questions about life. Okay. Why are we here? What's right? What's wrong? What's wrong with the human race and how is it going to get fixed? What should I be spending most of my time doing in this world while I'm here to make more good happen? Those kind of questions, guess what? Those are religious. And guess what? Everybody is answering them. And even if they're not thinking about it, even if they haven't thought consciously about it, their lives are an answer to who they are, why they're here, what they think their purpose in life is, and it's always religious in nature. You can't get away from religious questions. You can say, don't talk about your formal religious stuff, but then what happens in the public square are still religious issues. That's why Michael Perry, church a state scholar from Wake Forest University wrote this, to say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it is faith-based and controversial is itself a faith-based statement and incredibly controversial and therefore itself should be kept on, out on its own terms of the public square. You get it? To say you shouldn't have that in the public square is another way of saying that shouldn't even be in the public square. Then what gets stuck in the public? Nothing happens in the public square. The real question that we're dealing with today is um, what exclusive beliefs, what faith, 
everybody has one, works in such a way that it actually creates loving, humble servants of this world. Because everybody has exclusive beliefs. And I think that's where John comes up here in our text and gives us this third strategy, which simply can be said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the strategy. It empowers us to live humble lives of service to others. Instead of trying to reduce every religion down to its common core, you know, oh, all religions are. By the way, you won't find a common core. You know, maybe morality. That is, you know, do to others what you would have them do to you is basically, at best, the common core in all religions. But it's morality. It's not even religious. It's just an ethic. But instead of seeing that, because everybody kind of knows that, let's look at three particularities that John talks about in this part of the letter that show us what's unique about Christianity and how those three things actually do not turn Christians into self-righteous bigots who look down at other people, but into humble servants who don't think of themselves or are not to think of themselves any better than anyone else, period. Okay? So the first God in the flesh. John writes, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You can't find an... I mean, this is what's so amazing about Christianity. It is out of the blue, and it's shocking enough that even Judaism struggled with this issue, though it's, it's you know, kind of the parent religion of Christianity. And that is, how in the world would... Why would? You know, it's kind of insane that God would come right into the middle of human history and take on human flesh. But that's the point, that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is God in human flesh, God taking on a human body. He doesn't just point the way, he is the way. And he's the way to both be fully human and the way to show us who God really is. Now we'll get into more of how that actually changes us into humble servants in a moment. The second is the goal of salvation. Most other world religions see the purpose of salvation as an escape from the flesh, the body, the material world. Eastern faiths, many of them, see this world as kind of an illusion that needs to be escaped from. But even some, if you call them Western faiths or Middle Eastern faiths, they look at the human body as a bad thing and you have to mortify it. Not that human sinfulness, which is bodily as well, but human, the human body. And they look for a salvation that escapes from the world and gets somewhere else. And people with that viewpoint often then, all they want to do is save your, quote, soul. And who cares how they do it? They're just looking at trying to get you to the next life, which often in many people's understanding is totally immaterial and, quote, spiritual. But the body and this world and stuff is kind of yucky. 
But Christianity says God took on a human body that the birth of Jesus Christ, God becomes finite. The infinite becomes finite and redeems this world. That through his life, he served this world completely and healed diseases and cared for the sick and fed those who were hungry. And <laughs> his resurrection, he doesn't like zip, get out of this body, moving on. He actually has his disciples touch his side and his wounds in his hands, he has a glorified body, all saying the purpose of salvation in Christianity is to redeem this world, to transform it, not to get rid of it. So Vinoth Ramachandra writes this, Christian salvation lies not in escape from this world, in the transformation of it. You will not find hope in this physical world in any other religious system or philosophy, the biblical vision is unique. And that is why if someone says, surely there is salvation in other faiths, I always ask them, what salvation are you talking about? So that's our second point, is that we have a goal of salvation that's different. And then thirdly, grace. All the other religions of the world go through this process, perform these things, believe these truths, and then God will. Um, you've got to love first. And if you do these things, if you follow these ethics, then God will then save your soul. But the Bible does not say you are saved that way. And any time that Christianity comes across as another way of saying you better do this first and then God will, it is not Christianity. So 1 John 4.10, which I think you'll be touching on next week, Carl, says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propiti propitiation for our sins. In other words, God comes first to love us. You don't love God first. He loves you first. Jesus isn't mainly a teacher telling you what to do. He is a savior who redeems you, forgives you, loves you. So what does all these three things say? You know, you might say, well, wait a minute. We just have to love each other. And if we just love each other, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You try to get people to love each other. You just try. If it's going to work, it should have worked by now, don't you think? People have been telling us to love each other for thousands of years. There's more advice on that. There's more telling. There's more education. There's more everything. And it's not happening. Christianity says it's not going to work that way. You don't start to love others by being told to do it. You begin to love others by being loved first. So we're going to do these in reverse order and show how this changes us from aloof or separate from or better than attitudes into humble servants, deeply loving this world. Okay? So first of all, grace. The Bible says you're not saved by your performance. Religion says that's how it works. You know, follow this eightfold path, this 12-step method, even the Ten Commandments. You do these things, everything's great. And then, you know what happens? I follow that. 
I start looking, you know, I did pretty good today. Um, you didn't. I must be a little better than you. I'm a couple rungs up the ladder from you. And it doesn't take long before that turns into self-righteousness. The gospel doesn't allow anyone to be self-righteous. It kills that. I don't know if you realize that that's kind of the hard. That's why I think Christianity is hard, because it kills that wonderful self-righteous impulse I have all the time. You know? And in the Bible, you won't even find Paul or Peter or Mary. You won't find Martha. You won't find anybody in the New Testament being able to have, have a position of self-righteousness at all. Jesus cuts it down. And pastors or missionaries today, humanitarians who do millions of things around the world, or, you know, philanthropists or scholars, no one can be self-righteous. The Bible puts it out simply in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift. Mic drop. Done. No exceptions. That's why Paul would call himself the one who's probably spread Christianity more than any other, who suffered more than any other that I can ever think of. He said, I'm chief of sinners. I'm the worst. He didn't put himself up at the best. And the gospel of Jesus Christ places you, you under the cross and everyone else at the same level. So status and money and work and ethnicity and gender and nationality and intelligence and talent and religiosity and heritage, they all are eliminated as ways to be better than or different than anyone else. The gospel is probably the only faith system I know where I can look at someone else and say, you know, they probably are better than me. And they don't believe what I believe. That I don't look at other people and think they're worse than me. I can't do that. In fact, I know myself a little too well. So I can't approach anybody from that superiority attitude. And that's why, Matt, when you had those wonderful street preachers down in Naples, I just always find it a power play. And they're preaching from kind of a pedestal of superiority. And it's really sad. It undercuts the whole idea of sharing gospel at all. The goal of salvation. Okay? Like I said, religious, uh, most religions look at this world as kind of a, the material world is a bad place. Christianity says Jesus Christ entered into human history to redeem humanity to show us what it is that matter actually matters. And this world actually matters. The purpose of salvation is the renewal of this world. And so anything that I'm doing to serve this world or care about this world or steward this world or manage this world, I cannot diss this world. I'm not looking at just trying to, quote, save somebody's soul. By the way, the word soul means life. It's not a separate thing from a human body. I'm looking at treating everything holistically. And that's what the gospel does. And then finally, God in the flesh. If he is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Now, I know this point can easily then be taken as, well, you know, my religion was founded by God. Yours was just founded by a human being. <laughs> so it sounds like it could really be a problem. But historically, if you look back at the early church, 
the opposite actually happened. The Greeks and the Romans of the uh, first century had what we would call pluralism at the center of their religion. Every god or goddess, they'd just add one more in. They didn't care what you believed, and yet their society was totally stratified. You know, in Rome, I think there were eight slaves for every one free person. And there, everybody had their little place, and everything was kept separate. It was Christianity with the in Jesus Christ is Lord, and there is no other, that created the most inclusive, welcoming community that the world ever saw. So that the classes of society that were separate, the rich and the poor, and Greek and Roman society were brought together in one house church time and again. And the ethnicities that were kept separate in Judaism were brought together in Christianity like never before. Slave and free were brought together. Men and women, everything that you can see was brought together and included that different things like language did not get in the way of seeing each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because it was Jesus who himself became human, who shows what ultimate reality is. So if he's fully human and fully God, then you know what ultimate reality is? Someone dying on the cross for the sake of those who hated him. And if that's the case, then my goal in life is to serve others even if they don't like me. How can I become arrogant or full of myself or think better than anyone when I have a Savior, a God who did this for me in Jesus Christ? If you take moralism or religion into your life, it's going to create a ladder and you're going to feel better than others in one form or another. You even take secularism into your life. You're going to feel better than those stupid, foolish, ignorant, superstitious people who are religious. You take Jesus into your life, you're going to end up loving those who don't love you back, serving them and giving yourself for the sake of this world. Let's pray. Lord God, the deep love that you have for us in Jesus Christ is the only thing, Lord. It's amazing. Yeah, um, John tells us to watch out for these false teachers, and we, we have seen some. Uh, we've seen some today that either uh, push themselves or push rules and laws and, and separate and divide, Lord. Um, teach us, Lord, that uh, not every spirit is good and that we test them to see the truth that we find, Lord Jesus, in you. And as such, uh, just move us by your spirit to be humble servants of others, sharing not from a position of superiority in any way, but from a position of service. We pray that Thrive becomes such a community that people can experience that kind of welcome and inclusion and acceptance. Lord God, we know that we are not better than and you all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are also justified freely by your grace. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. So, Lord God, um, teach us to be bold because of your goodness. Encourage us, O oh Lord, to share your love and truth with others in um, just profound ways. But always, Lord, 
that we stay in the position of servants, not lording it over anyone. Um, we pray, O oh Lord, um, for people who need uh, your love and your touch today. There are people uh, within our, the family of Thrive that are struggling right now. We pray right now for Myrna uh, up in Maryland. We know, Lord, that you are with her at this moment. You've granted her such a strong faith throughout life, and your grace has been shown in many situations. We ask for it now as she um, has a tumor, and they're not quite sure in the abdomen what this tumor is all about. Lord, thank you for relieving her pain by having this fluid drained off. We just pray now, Lord, as the biopsy comes back, that you would give her peace, that you'd bring healing, and that you would be glorified in her life once again. We lift up to you, O Lord, um, others who need your healing care and touch. For the Cardenas family who has faced COVID uh, in a variety of ways, we pray for their healing and bring them fully through this, Lord, and may they praise you for your goodness in their life. We pray, O Lord, for our campus ministry this fall, for the students as they return. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, a servant's hearts toward them, and that we would also encourage and build them up to be servants to others on that campus, Lord God, and that all the campus ministries at FGCU would be united in sharing your gospel, that you are Lord alone, uh, that neither are better or worse than, you know, that we don't play any of those games, but we give you all the glory. We lift up to you, O Lord God, also um, our ministry this fall as we um, leave the summer season, Lord, and come into a year where, um, you know, the schools will be back in session soon. And um, they would also, Lord, bring and draw people into the holy habits of being part of your church, part of the ministry that we have here at Thrive and elsewhere, that you are glorified in this community that you alone are shown uh, in your goodness and grace. Bless our upcoming um, food drive, Lord, other events that we have planned. May they truly be blessed by you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your deep love. Without it, <laughs> I, th I, none of this would make any sense. But because of you, Lord Jesus, this all fits together. Bless us, Lord, as we now move into um, a time of offering. May we give sacrificially for your kingdom's sake and thankfully and joyfully for your work in this world through us and through other organizations. And be with those who have been online with us today that they, when the time is right, Lord, they can be back in worship with us here. Or if they're at a long distance, Lord, that you just bless them and find a church fellowship near them to be a part of so that they can serve and give as you so want them to. All this we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.